A. Oh, sometimes you go up here. Hey, Jim. Well, I did what it said. Yeah. Which then by that point, it's like, yeah, really gonna. So then at that point, it's almost like start in fifth grade. Although I suppose they have to, they would have to have the 10 year olds wear it because it's a state thing. I saw a lot of steel online. It was a teacher, a woman making fun of what it would be like when uh -huh. the kids come with a mask, you know, and look, I got a new mask. Oh, I like yours better, and they try. I mean, it was just all sorts of interesting things. Like lunches. Oh, so, that's fine. Anyhow, yeah. Like I said, I, I, I worked with seventh and eighth graders mm -hmm. when I was with the district. So it was uh, mm -hmm. it was different. But they, as yeah. the years went on, the majority of the seventh and eighth graders got lower and lower and lower. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. It was sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is. Well, Harrison was even saying, like, Billy Morrison, he talks about his third, uh, third grade teacher. Yeah, he teaches in this Yeah, but he's talking about uh, how, you know, you talk about maturity and social cues and stuff, and he's like, you know, so much of when you're teaching that young, so much of what you're teaching them is social cues and facial expressions, and they're not going to get that opportunity to learn that. True. Yeah, yeah. Anywhere right. you go. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. It's it. I think we'll be feeling a lot of repercussions from this for a very long time. Oh, I think so too. I think it's going to be. It, it's it's worse than I guess the polio epidemic and a lot of the, you know, the other things. So mm -hmm. yeah. Well, someone's not too happy with this stuff here. <laughs> Oh, there's Sally. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're trying to blow the video up a little bit, but we need a one more person on before we can do it. I need one more person before I can get a grid. I have a question. Okay. It's not related to the sixth commandment. That's fine. I guess when I was growing up, we were always taught that we were going to have to be accountable for our lives when we reached the early gates. But then what I've been thinking lately, instantly, then when we get to the early gates, why would we have to account for them? Can I wait till we get started and do that for everyone? Because that's a really good yeah. question. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't know if it really related. So I don't care if it relates. It's interesting. Um, okay. no, that's I why I ask when, every time we start, is there anything y'all want to talk about? Because that's that's awesome. Um, I would love to talk about that. Let's wait just a few minutes and uh, see if we grab anybody else. And uh, then we'll do that in front of everybody. I went to Lutheran schools when I was in elementary, so they made us 
think a lot. And I told this a lot. Well, that's good. Um, we'll do it from Matthew chapter The side door is locked. If you keep an eye for a few more minutes, the parish hall doors are good. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I saw a six in it. It's Makes it a little easier, huh? All right, I'm at time. Can you all hear me okay? Super. All right, uh, we have one question here before we dive into yours. Um, do you want to ask this one more time? Okay. Or? Well, when I, I was brought up to believe that when we get to heaven, we have to account for our lives and, you know, how we backed it, our sins and everything. But then I got to thinking that if our sins are already forgiven, why would we have to account, or how would they even, if they're forgiven and gone, how would they even... You know, they would be gone. That's fantastic. And I love how you, you took the scriptures to how we understand law and gospel to start to interpret them. Because the, the, when we, we've talked about this, remember, the two great doctrines of the Bible, law and gospel, help us start to peruse what's inside of it and actually start to make heads or tails of it. Because both things are true. Um, both of these things the scriptures loudly pro proclaim. First, your sins are forgiven in Christ who is crucified. You have no sins left that you're going to have to explain. But at the other hand, the scriptures are also very clear. Uh, Jesus promises to separate the sheep from the goats. Remember the parable of uh, Matthew 25, the parable that is a future event. Uh, he will lay out the sheep on one hand and the goats on the other into the sheep. He will say, uh, well done, thou good and faithful servants. Enter into the gates of, of your father. For when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. And they were like, Lord, when did we do this stuff? And so also to the goats, he would say, 
depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they said, Lord, when did we see you and not take care of you? What are you talking about? Um, even our Athanasian Creed talks about this too. And it's one of those verses at the very end of the Athanasian Creed, that big long one that we say once a year on Trinity Sunday. Um, and and uh, we, we say uh, those who have done good will enter into eternal glory and those who have done evil will go into eternal fire. Um, and we believe this. So let's take law and gospel into this and then work our way through it. First, do you have any sins that you need to be afraid of on the last day? Not one. No. Jesus took them all. You have no sins left. Your sins are all forgiven you. There is nothing left to condemn you for. Um, and so uh, those who then were separated and called sheep, were there also people they passed over? Yes. But Jesus forgives them. They're gone. The thing that calls them is not what they've done, but their type. Before he ever lays out to the sheep and the goats what they have done or failed to do, the first thing he separates them by is kind, not works. He separates the sheep from the goats. The thing that makes you a sheep is baptism. You are white. You are a kind now. You are a child of God. And um, so then you also then have a God who promises. Who does the good works? You are God working through you. God works them through you, and he still promises you reward for these on the last great day. So not only do you have a God who forgives you all of your sins and condemns you not for what you have done, for he bore the cross, but he does good works through you and then promises to reward you for those things that he has done through you. This is a twofer. Um, it, that's the technical theological term, twofer. Um, what, what he does is he says, on the last day, you will give an account. And for your sins, you'll just say, Jesus. And then he'll say, also, well done, thou good and faithful servant. For look at all the things that I did through you. I was, I was a wife and I was a mother. I was, I was a citizen. All of the places where God worked good, he'll give you credit because he did them through you. Um, so, so there is a last day and there is a giving of an account, but your account is finished. Your, as far as the explaining your sins, the, the purgatory, uh, the purgation, the purging of sins, that's already done and accounted for because that was where Christ bore the cross for you. And that's done. Does that kind of get after it? Yeah, because I had a view of him having a chalkboard, and every time I, you know, I did something, you know, it was written on. Yeah, like that this. was my child life. Right, and that's that's a terrifying. That's a religion of the law. Um, like wholeheartedly, that's a religion of the law. That's the, the religion of Islam. That's a religion of Judaism. That's a religion of most of the pagan gods. Um, there'll be some sort of weighing at the end of your life to see if your goods outweigh your evils or if you, you committed any of the, the unforgivable atrocities. And by that, you're simply cast out. No, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. And if you somehow measure up at the end. And so the, the impotence of salvation is always on you. Do more. Be better. Uh, for us, though, to have a religion of the gospel, all we can do is look to Christ. All we can do is look to his mercy, what he has done for us. That's a good question. Any of y'all got questions out there? Remember to unmute yourself if you have them. All right, so we are picking up at the uh, Sixth Commandment in the Large Catechism, paragraph 202. You should be able to see it on the screen if you don't have it at home. Uh, the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, and if we remember from last week, uh, there's, there's two kinds of things we want to grab hold of this. I'm going to use the old translation from our catechism because it's easier to talk uh, to, to people about because it, it's a word that, that is... Um, it's a word that's actually more straightforward than the new translation. The old translation is, you shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? 
We should fear and love God so that we lead a chaste and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Uh, the new translation is we should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do. Chaste is an easier term. Chaste is simply this. What if God wanted you to have a healthy, happy marriage? And the things that would help you have a healthy, happy marriage, either now or someday in the future, were chaste. And the things that would make it harder, either now or in the future, to have a healthy, happy marriage were unchaste. And so if you run around with, um, if, if, you, if you run around with five other guys before you ever get married, you have baggage from that. Like we just have to acknowledge, can your sins be forgiven? Absolutely. Are they? Because Jesus died for you, completely forgiven. But there's still baggage that comes from that. That's unchaste because it makes it harder, even if you're not married yet, when you finally get there, to have a healthy, happy marriage. So we talk about these things in this way. Um, in, in the same way, uh, this is a commandment that is framed wholly and completely in the positive. When Luther goes through the, the small catechism and he lays out the, the um, commandments, it's almost always a pattern. We should fear and love God so that we should do this, but we should not do that. So for murder, which we just did, we should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but we should help and support him in every physical need. This and the first commandment are framed only in the positive. In other words, just this, we should fear and love God so that we lead a chaste and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Uh, this is a, a framework that has been lost upon us because we're afraid of how the culture looks. Because the culture right now primarily struggles with the sixth commandment. Like this is the one that is in the news. This is the one that is uh, uh, gonna drive a lot of people to the vote. Uh, this, uh, this is one of those great sort of um, issues of the day. Um, and we did it 10 years ago with, with um, who could get married. And now we're dealing with gender issues and all sorts of things. And, and all of it, what we want to do is the same way that we came into this. We want to make this a, a law that only condemns and not a law that points us to, to something beautiful, points us to Christ. And so um, most of the time that churches teach the sixth commandment, is it thou shalt or thou shalt not? It's, it's almost when we talk about adultery, we talk about all the things you shouldn't do. Don't look at this website. Don't do this to, don't do that. Don't think about this. Don't think about that. And all of those are true. But when Luther grabs the commandment, he actually starts with that, the grander truth. What if marriage was worth defending in the first place? What if we talked about marriage as if it was a good thing? So when we're telling people not to do other stuff, we're actually holding it up against something that, that is a value. In the same way, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. And so we could go through and just name every single idol and say, don't have this as an idol, don't have this as an idol, don't have this as an idol. But instead, Luther starts with, you have a God who loves you. Fear, love, and trust in him because he wants to take care of you. And in the same way, when it comes to marriage, if the church actually talked about marriage as if it were a good thing more often, it would be easier to address some of the other things that go on, especially when it comes to, to kids. Because if you're going to try and convince kids not to do those things, it's an uphill battle. You're just never going to convince them that those things are less fun than not doing those things. And so what we can do, though, is start to paint a picture of marriage as a good thing so that even when they're young, even when they're my kid's age, um, even when they're Jamie's age out there, we can actually start to say marriage is a good thing. And one day, Jamie, you might have a wife. And, and if God gives you a wife, we want to take care of her and love her and serve her and cherish her. And it's so great to be married. It's one of the greatest gifts God can give you. And here, what we can say is um, inside of this, then, 
you're already working for this woman that God hasn't given you yet. And that's how we're going to deal with chastity. There are things in life, and, and maybe, maybe God has given you the gift of singleness. He gives that to people sometimes. It's a gift. It is a supernatural gift to be single. And I was reading that. Why is it a supernatural? Uh, it, it is a supernatural gift. It's one of the best words that, that Luther uses to talk about this. Uh, we didn't quite get there yet, but we're going to. Oh. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll jump ahead. Uh, Luther talks about the gift of singleness as supernatural, um, like, like superpowers. So like, if you have the gift to be single, that is uh, on par with being Spider-Man. Understand that, that this is how impressive this is. Uh, you, you have the powers of, of a, a human spider. You can climb up walls and stuff. What, what Luther says is, um, it is not good for man to be alone. And so the typical way that he helps us, both so that we would deal with lust, um, and, and so that, that we would um, also have families, is marriage. There are some people that don't struggle with the sin of lust. They just genuinely don't. It's not their bad. That's supernatural. That is above nature. That's like a superpower that, that you can walk through this society and say, those things don't tempt me. That's a superpower. And some people have been given that. Praise God. They can make it through this life with their faith intact without marriage. That's not something everybody can do. Paul himself testifies to this. He says, um, one of the reasons that God has given us marriage is so that we may not burn. Um, and what that essentially, it's, it's a self-combustion. It's the idea that if we're going to start to identify by our, our um, attractions, it pulls us away from faith. And you see this actually in, um, in the pride movement. Um, so much so that now when people want to talk about how they identify, that means that the, the one thing in the whole wide world you should know about me is what I want to do with my downstairs. There's nothing else to me you should care about. Just I identify. My whole persona should be this one attraction. What if there was more to you than that? Your, your identity is baptized. If, if your first identity is what the Lord has given you, then you can deal with the, the sins that we have, the lust that we have, all of us, and recognize that some of the ways that God gives us to deal with this is marriage. There will be some people who don't struggle with this and who are given the gift of being single. They shouldn't be cast aside. They shouldn't be looked down upon. Uh, they shouldn't be seen as unwanted. They should be seen as precious gifts to the church uh, because they have an ability to serve in a way that not everybody else does. Uh, what you see right now is uh, my wife has not been given the gift of singleness. She has been given uh, the gift of family. And the gift sometimes seems like a burden because right now she's watching my kids run this way and that way. Um, I will always have less time as a pastor than a, a, a priest with no kids. This is, in fact, one of the things that, that Francis says um, is why he still maintains that priests shouldn't get married. So they'll have more time to serve the Lord. And I would recognize he has the, the priest down the street has more time than me because he doesn't have kids. They take a lot of time and it's worth it. What's the problem with the priesthood right now and so much time on their hands, though? It's not chastity. Yeah. Um, like, even to not go into the details of the things that need not be spoken, what you have then is men who have desires and attractions and even lusts that should be given in marriage, but are told not to. So let me talk to you about it this way. Um, if I know that you skip dinner and you're kind of hungry and I say, all right, here's how we're going to do this. Just don't think about hamburgers. Whatever you do, don't think about double cheeseburgers, French fries. We, we would never put bacon on it for you ever. Don't think about bacon on your cheese. Does that make it easier to skip dinner or harder to skip dinner? All right. So here's the problem with sin. When we try and put it in our own little box and just say, you stay there, don't leave. It never stays put. It always tries to break out and infect other things in the lives. 
And so these men, it's not that they come into the church wanting to cause great harm to, to people that they were given to care for. Wanting to, it's not that they came in wanting to commit such atrocities that need not be made. But it's that they have these lusts that they try and box away and expect to never actually mutate. Because that's what happens, is they mutate and they fester. It's like if you have an infection on your arm, a cut that gets infected, putting a band-aid over it will not make the infection go away. In fact, just covering up and pretending it's not there might kill you. That's what you're seeing happen. And so I would say the gift of singleness is to not actually have to worry about that infection, but to still have that extra time. Praise God. Um, where Luther actually starts to talk about this in a big way is uh, with widows. Um, he says one of the greatest gifts to the church is always your widows. Um, because even in his time, the men tended to go first. Um, in Nebraska, it was because they were farmers and they did stupid stuff. Like most Nebraska farmers I knew did not still have 10 fingers. It was rare if you were a grown-up farmer with 10 fingers. It was because they put their hands inside a machinery. They no right sane human being would put on their hands in there, especially while it runs. But they're like, no, I got this. It's fine. They, they go first because they, they do things like that. Um, but the widows, widows have time to serve the church. The widows have time to care for those. To, to be parts of, and you see it here too, um, uh, less in COVID because Lord have mercy. But at the same time, what you have is a group of people who have been given um, the, the blessing of being able to dedicate themselves toward their neighbor in a different capacity. And praise God for that. It's supernatural. It, it's, like, it's like being Spider-Man, but getting less credit for it. No cool costume, but it's still awesome. Does that kind of get after it? Awesome. You guys following me so far? You have questions? Make sure you unmute yourself. All right, let's pick up at paragraph 202. Here we go. Because among us there is such a shameful mess and the very dregs of all vice and lewdness, this commandment is directed also against all manner of unchastity, whatever it may be called. Again, this sounds kind of timely to me. I don't know about y'all. This was written in the 1540s. It could be written in the year 2020. Not only is the external act forbidden, but also every kind of cause, incitement, and means so that the heart, lips, and whole body may be chased and afford no opportunity, help, or persuasion to in chastity. So again, we're not just talking about the outward act of adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery doesn't mean don't cheat. It means, what if marriage was such a good thing that any heart, that any thought that you harbored in your heart against was dangerous and bad because marriage is such a precious gift that we don't want to see it ruined. The heart is where adultery starts every time. But Luther says, stay away from them because they only lead to worse. You guys with me? 204. And not only this, but we also make resistance afford protection and rescue wherever there is danger and need. And again, that we give help and counsel so as to maintain our neighbor's honor. Time out. This right here is why the church should talk about this in terms of the positive. So there will be people in your life that struggle with sins. Sometimes you don't want to talk about them because they, they seem icky. Sometimes you don't want to talk about them just because they seem so radically different. How does Luther want to talk about the people who struggle with this commandment? In terms of mercy and gathering them in or in terms of looking down on them and casting them out? They should have help. They should have counsel. Their honor should be maintained. If you take the Sixth Commandment as a road to purge the church of everybody who sins publicly, what you do 
is cast aside the sinners that Jesus died for. That doesn't make what they're doing okay. That doesn't make what they're wrestling with normal. It, it makes it something that they actually need help with. And what is the church but the help for sinners? This is how we ought to be towards our neighbor. Are you with me? For whenever you omit this, when you could make resistance, or connive it as if it did not concern you, you are as truly guilty as the one perpetuating the deed. And this also speaks to us. Um, when, when we ignore the things going on, as if they aren't causing trouble. Um, well, so here's the deal. If uh, dinner's at six o'clock and my kids are hungry at 5.50 because they're kids, and I see one of them run into the kitchen and grab a cracker and leave, and he looks at me as he grabs the cracker, I, I'm not gonna blame you. That child looks at me as that child grabs the cracker. I don't wanna pin anybody down. Um, and I don't say anything to that child what have I just told that child? Have that cracker. If we actually talk about these things as if they're worthy of um, struggling against and don't ignore them, we maintain, and that's, again, that's, that's not saying it's yours to go out and say, these are all the things you're doing wrong and I want, I, we're going to walk through this together. But it is yours. If somebody puts this thing to you and says, this is, this is what I'm struggling with, we don't say that's normal. We can say it's common. But there's a difference between common and normal. Have we talked about that? The difference between common and normal? Common is something you see everywhere. Normal is how it's supposed to be. What's common is not necessarily what's normal. And what's normal is not necessarily what's common. We are normed by the word of God. You are made normal by the word of God. God's word tells us how things are supposed to be. I look around and I don't see that. That doesn't mean it's not how it's supposed to be. And so I can then say, what if somebody is born with a propensity or an attraction that they should not have? And they say, well, I was born this way, so it's normal. I would say it might be common, but it's not normal. It might be that you were born with those kinds of sins. And I don't even have a problem with that. I'm not, I'm not happy that we're born sinners, but all of us have been born sinful. And my favorite sins are not the same as your favorite sins. The things that, that really tempt me might not be the ones that really tempt you. And so maybe you were born that way, but does that make it normal? No, that's not normal. That's not okay. It's something that should be helped. That's something that should be struggled against. And first and foremost, that's something that should be brought to God so that he would give mercy for it, forgiveness for it. Are you with me on this? Yes. Fantastic. You have questions. I have a question. Yeah. Okay. Is... Separating yourself from God, a, an unforgivable sin? Define separating yourself from God. Yes. Yes. Um, so let me put it this way. Every sin that you commit is a separation from God. Because um, sin is that which pulls you away from God. The unforgivable sin is a sin that is a rejection of faith altogether. The unforgivable sin is unbelief. And so, for example, if you want to watch this, uh, this is how our Lutheran uh, fathers in our confessions talk about mortal sin. The Roman Catholics talk about mortal sin as if there's like five or six things that if you do them, you're out. If you murder, that's a mortal sin. You're done. To, to a Lutheran, though, a mortal sin is a sin that finally drives you at last away from Christ. And so, um, for example, we can, do it with, um, we can do it with stealing. And so the first time I steal, I say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I shouldn't have stole. 
but I just keep stealing. And the next time it doesn't bother me so much. And the next time it doesn't bother me so much. And eventually I come to the point where I say, who is God to tell me not to steal? Or if you would rather do it this way, if, for example, I don't know, hypothetically, you have come to church every Sunday of your life until about, I don't know, February of 2020. And all of a sudden you can't come to church no more. Does it feel really weird? Yeah. Yeah, feels really weird. If you hadn't been to church in 15 years, did you notice anything amiss? Probably not, because you already didn't come to church. And after so long, there comes a point in time where you say, you know what, I don't need church anymore. I've been doing just fine without it. The, the unforgivable sin is a sin that is uh, unbelief. There's a difference between sin and unbelief. Every sin drives you from God, but God reaches out and grabs you and pulls you back. The, the unforgivable sin is a rejection of him coming towards you. It is unbelief. Does that kind of answer your question? Kind of. I guess I always wonder about suicide. Oh, let's do suicide um, first. Let me give you a simple tool then to, to kind of parse through this. If you want to differentiate between sin and unbelief, ask one simple question. It drives people insane, so be careful with it. This is a powerful tool. Ask them, is it a good thing or a bad thing? And then they'll give you all kinds of excuses. And then what you do is you acknowledge every single one of them as if it's valid and then ask it again. So let me do stealing. Um, so I, I stole uh, this loaf of bread to feed my starving family. And you say, well, is that a good thing or a bad thing, pastor? The seventh commandment says thou shalt not steal. And I'll say, well, I had, they, my family was starving. And they say, that's, that's terrible. You're right. It, it's awful that your family was starving. And I understand your desire as a father want to see them provided. But stealing, though, is it a good thing or a bad thing? You see how you just narrowly, you, you narrow in on it. And eventually somebody will come down and say, you're right, it was a bad thing. Lord have mercy. But when somebody says, it was a good thing that I stole, I would say, woe to you. Let's do suicide now. Is suicide a good thing or a bad thing? A bad thing. It's a bad thing. A bad thing. Um, you don't even necessarily need the decalogue to recognize this. I've watched people who have no real understanding of God or his church hurt by suicide. They understand it's a bad thing. If you want a commandment, it's the fifth one. You shall not murder. All right. So is suicide a sin? Yes. Is it an unforgivable sin? That's the question. And so why are your sins forgiven? Because you asked Jesus to forgive them or because he died on the cross for you? He died on the cross 2,000 years before you ever thought to ask him to. So let's start there. All right. Now recognize when Luther talked about suicide, he talked about it this way. He said, what if you went on a walk in the woods and you were taken upon by robbers and they mugged you and they, they, they left you bleeding there to die? You can say that's a bad thing. And, and you can say, well, I wish you didn't put yourself in that place. But at the same time, you just got involved in something bigger than yourself. When it comes to, to such a dark thing, Luther said, sometimes we just get so lost in the dark. And the devil sets upon us and leads us in a place where we don't understand what is bright from what is dark. And we think the only option left for us is something awful. But that's not the same thing as unbelief. God can save the person set upon by robbers and God can save this, the person who commits suicide. That's not to say it's okay. It's not okay. But forgiveness is poured out not simply because you asked for it, but because God died on the cross. 
So when it comes to preaching a, um, a funeral for somebody who committed suicide, run to this. Are they baptized? Does baptism forgive sins? Just once or every day, all the time. If it is a daily washing and renewal, like Titus says, well, then baptism is your armor and shield. That doesn't make it okay to sin. Suicide makes all of your problems other people's problems. That's bad. Suicide is a permanent solution to a very temporary problem. That's very bad. But at the same time, if you're going to measure heaven and hell, please start with Jesus and not with me. Because if you want to start with me, even if I make it to old age, I still have sins I didn't realize I did wrong and needed to ask forgiveness for in the first place. I'm so good at sinning that I will do it without realizing it. I will offend you and not realize it because I'm, I'm a fool. And you need to come and tell me. And if you tell me, I'll say, woe to me, forgive me. But in the moment, I didn't realize it. If you have to ask forgiveness for every sin for it to be forgiven, well, who can number their transgressions? Even David says this. So we'll, we'll hold two thoughts, that, that suicide is sinful. And you can tell because first God says, this is wrong. Don't commit murder. And second, because it, like, look, it hurts. But sins are forgiven in Jesus. So you preach a suicide funeral the same way any, you, any other funeral should be preached. If you're preaching it only based on the works of that person, that's a bad funeral sermon. If the funeral sermon is just, this was a good person. They tried their best at everything they did. Lord, have mercy. Because if somebody stands up at my funeral and says that, there will be at least 10 other people there that will say, nah, he was a jerk. So let it rest on Jesus. And say, Jesus died for that poor sinner. That poor sinner is baptized. I know that he struggled with sins, and I know that sometimes they overwhelmed him, but I also saw where he took his sins. He laid them at that altar week after week. He ate and drank the body and blood of Jesus. He is a sinner for whom Christ died, and his, his righteousness is found only in this, not in himself, only in this. And so when it comes to suicide, there will be people who committed suicide in heaven, and there will be people who committed suicide in hell. The distinction is not the sin, but the faith, the Savior. Does that answer? I think so. <laughs> you sinning is not proof that you don't believe in God. Otherwise, you both, you, you sort of hopscotch between belief and unbelief umpteen times a day, umpteen times an hour. Sin and unbelief are different. Unbelief is, is when you say, it's a good thing that I did this. It's a good thing that this happened. And in the clear light of day, when, when shown your sin, you say, yeah, I'm glad that happened. Not while you were doing it. While you were doing it, well, most of us are caught up in that. God in his mercy chases us down. Think about the, the hundred sheep. When one leaves the fold and the 99 are there, does God say, well, you made those choices. Until you choose to come back to me, you're out there. No. He sets out after the one that is lost, lays it upon his own shoulders, and carries it home. This must be how we talk about sinners. It must be. Because if heaven is only full of people who made good choices, it will be a lonely, lonely place. Okay. All right, good question. Thank you. Anybody else? Right, we are at paragraph 205. Thus, to state it in the briefest manner, there is a, are we, let's give you a little more of the screen, huh? That'd be nice for you. Sorry about that. Uh, there we go. 
Thus, to state it in the briefest manner, there is required this much, that everyone both live chastely himself and help his neighbor do the same, so that God, by this commandment, wishes to hedge round and about and protect us with a rampart every spouse that no one trespass against them. Again, you see a pattern. What if marriage was a good thing and worth defending in the first place? If you want to talk about all this stuff about marriage, and you can't actually say why it's good to be married, you're never going to convince anyone. When you want to talk about adultery, if all you have is a laundry list of things not to do, you lose sight of the precious gift. But since this commandment is aimed directly at the state of matrimony and gives occasion to speak of the same, you must well understand and mark first how gloriously God honors and extols this estate inasmuch as by his commandment, he both sanctions and guards it. He sanctioned it above in the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. But here, as, as we had said, um, hedged about it, and protected it. So God lays aside this vocation of spouse. And he says, now, now those attractions that you have are not wrong, but right. Now they are not damaging, but they build. Now you actually have a place, a, a person, an office, that when these things are directed properly, they, they build up and they don't tear down. This is why it must be protected. Because inside of this office, things are, are, are helped, not hurt. You kind of with me? Yes. 207. Therefore, he also wishes us to honor and maintain it and conduct it as a divine and blessed estate. Because in the first place, he has instituted it before all others and therefore created man and woman separately, as is evident, not for lewdness, but that they should legitimately live together, be fruitful, beget children, nourish and train them to honor, to the honor of God. So the very first estate that God made is marriage. This is how we know how important it is. The first thing that God did when he set two people on the earth is he said, y'all are family now. Take care of each other. And he lays out how it's to be done. And it becomes a gift and no longer a curse. And you see it because when Adam and Eve are first in the garden and they're all naked like, they're not ashamed. And that's a word we can't even say now without shame, naked. We say it naked in, in Nebraska, so we're, we're gonna kind of maintain that. Uh, because we, we poke fun at it because it's such a shameful word. I can't even think about that. Um, and after the fall, what's the first thing? They recognize they're naked. And yeah, and then what do they do? They, they look to cover themselves. They look for leaves. They hide in the bushes from each other. This is actually the one person in the world it's okay to be naked in front of. And they can't even do that anymore. Um, this is what happens when unchastity takes over a marriage. Even though there was no outward act, because you know, only two people, there's nothing to actually cheat with at the same time. Uh, what you see here, though, is a blessed statement to build starting to be torn apart. Because Adam and Eve weren't just hiding from God in those bushes. They're hiding from each other. When God wants to see it fixed, what's he do? He takes skins from an animal and he clothes them as he kicks them out of the garden. He takes a sacrifice that something would bleed and die and covers it. Adam and Eve with a new identity. You can look at each other now and not feel weird. This is who you are to each other now, whole, a family. You, look at your 
look at each other, especially inside of your offices, in light of baptism. A sacrifice is made that you would be clothed in the white robes of righteousness, so that you would not look at each other based on your, your pasts, you would not look at each other based on your mistakes or your own shame, but you would look at each other wholly and completely upon the righteousness of Christ that he says, look at this person, he's the best person in the world for you, of course you should love him. And look at that person, she's the best person in the world, of course you should love her. Look how pure she is, look how holy she is, without blemish or spot is how Christ sees the church. This is Ephesians chapter 5, right? He, he sees her clothed in white robes without blemish or spot. That's us. So stop for a minute. And now imagine, remember, in, in deep shame and, and um, regret, every awful thing you would never want to confess on the last day before the Father. And recognize what he sees is not that person. He sees somebody holy without blemish or spot. Clothed in the white robes of Christ. You are baptized. This is how you are to see your spouse in light of Forgiveness, not that they have earned it, but that Jesus has given it. And here, you have a relationship that can actually endure. Because if your marriage is only built on you guys not messing up and being sinners, every single marriage has a time clock. But if your marriage is built on Christ and his mercy and his identity given, it will thrive. It will grow. It will, it will flourish because when you look at each other, it's not a measurement of what was broken. It is only a gift every day. And that's, that's, that's wonderful. And this is, why we, this is why we defend marriage. Because it's a chance to see somebody as almost a glimmer of how Christ sees you. This is what it's like when Paul is relating marriage to Christ in the church. This is the closest that you're going to get on this earth. Those best moments of your marriage, that's how Christ sees you all the time. Not because you've earned it, but only because of the love poured out on the cross. This is the gift. Ours is a shadow of that because there are also times where I'm sure that I'm not much to look at by my wife and she's just really annoyed with me. But on those days where she remembers, maybe that's why I married that fool. That times a thousand is how Christ sees you all the time without blemish or spot. Y'all with me? Yes. Super. Questions? Two oh eight. Therefore God has most richly blessed this estate above all others, and in addition has bestowed on it and wrapped up in it everything in the world, to the end that this estate might well be or might be well and richly provided for, excuse me. All right, time out. Do you have to be a Christian to be married? No. No. Do you have to be married in a church for it to count? No. If you're a Roman Catholic, the answer is yes. If you're a Roman Catholic, if you're not married by the Roman Catholic Church, you're not really married. I am technically not, I'm, I'm, I'm like halfway married to the Roman Catholic Church because I was not given their marriage. So go to your Lutheran catechism, where we start to pick apart the scriptures. Marriage is put in the first article of the Apostles' Creed. The first article, the creation article. Is creation only given to believers or also to unbelievers? To everyone. You don't have to be a believer to have a body, to have a house. Marriage is given to all of creation because God actually loves 
all of creation. Christians will find more in matrimony than the world does. Because in matrimony, Christians find that glimmer of Christ in the church. Should you get married in a church? Yes, you should. Because, well, why do you pray before you eat? Does it make the food taste better? The calories don't count if you pray. I've been doing that wrong. Thank you. Um, because God will take it away if you don't pray. No, because I say, look at this great thing that God gave me. I want to remember where it came from and pray that he'll take care of it and keep giving me more of it. And in the same way, we take our marriage to God and we say, look at this great thing God has given me. I hope that he'll take care of it and sustain me in it. But marriage is given to all of the world, which means if you are not married in a church, you're still married. You still are. Because marriage is, is a civil realm, not, not a, a, a churchly realm. The church should bless marriages. We should bless marriages. Because we recognize that God gives it, and we can teach about Christ and the church. But in your catechism, the third article of the creed is where all the church stuff happens. The first article of the creed is where all the world stuff happens. Spouse is in the first article. And that doesn't, that's not to belittle it. But that's to recognize that it is so important that if God only gave it to the Christians, woe to us. What if God only gave houses to the Christians? I guess it'd be easier to figure out who's in and who's out, but um, you could do that anyway. You have baptism. But what if God didn't want you to freeze to death in the winter? So much that he wanted to bring you into faith. Because remember, it's not just that God hates everybody who's not a Christian. God loves all the world. And he would have all the world come to faith. And just because he hasn't dragged you there yet doesn't mean that he'll stop giving you good gifts. Matthew chapter 5 says he makes the sun shine upon both the good and the evil alike. And that's not because he doesn't care. That's because he loves everyone. So we're not trying to belittle marriage by saying it doesn't need to be done in the church but should be done in the church. What we're saying is it is such a, a pivotal part of God's creation that it can even exist without the preaching that would follow it. The preaching should still follow it. Hear me again. The preaching should still follow it. Hear me again. It is good to get married in the church. But if you have not been married in the church, are you still rightly married? Absolutely. And if you weren't married in the church and then come into church and you're like, I have this, this great gift that God gave me, would you bless it? I would say, absolutely, we should bless your marriage. It doesn't make you more married than you were before, though. It's just now you can learn about how this relates to God and his mercy. Now you can start to see how it pertains to Christ and the church. It's not a question of how legitimate your marriage is. Your marriage is legitimate according to Genesis chapter 2. When you leave your father and mother and hold fast to your spouse. So in other words, um, you can tell marriage is legitimate really, really easy. It's not actually a government contract because that actually confuses the issue now more than ever. Because now your marriage license is person A and person B, not husband and wife. Now your marriage license is not until death do you part, but until you don't want this tax break anymore. That doesn't help clarify. That muddles you. Now, you're, you're even, I can say, um, I, I can tell your marriage is legitimate because it was done in a church. Not necessarily. Um, because some people were brought to faith after. It's really simple. If you want to see whether or not a marriage is legit, go ask the parents of the bride. Are they a family now, or do you have a problem with what's going on here? And they'll tell you real quick. If they say they're a family now, praise God, that's a marriage. Praise God, you have a family. 
And if they say something should be done with it, we should say what should be done with it. Because the marriage is defined biblically. As a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh isn't just an act of intercourse. It's, it's a family. It's a one body. It's, it's a, a union. That means that if it's torn apart, it'll actually hurt. And so inside of this, you can see what a blessed thing that God would give this gift to all people. What a blessed thing that he would use this gift given to all people to further teach Christians about his mercy, about how Christ relates to the church, about how many blessings that he pours forth on a regular basis, and how you can find as a joy a, a way to relate to another person in light of mercy and forgiveness instead of something that you must earn. Marriage is a wonderful thing. Um, but one of the things that sort of we started doing up north uh, when all this got really confusing about 10 years ago when I was still a little baby pastor is because um, we would say marriage in the scenario. Hang on, do you mean marriage like out there or marriage like in here? Because the word that means everything means nothing. Is we started to distinguish between marriage and holy matrimony. Marriage is a good God-given thing given to all people in creation. Holy matrimony is the church right where we bless this We should bless marriages. But God actually esteems this so much. The catechism said um, that um, he has wrapped up in it everything in the world, not in the church, but in the world. Because he actually wants the estate to be provided for even before people understand how great it is. That's what's awesome. I want to see this thing as good, even if you don't understand it yet. It's good, and I'm going to see it defended. And then I'm going to start to teach you about it. And then you'll grow even more to appreciate it. You grow even more to love it. You with me? All right, we went a little into the deep end. Does anybody have questions? All right. Married life, therefore, is no jest or presumption, but it is an excellent thing and a matter of divine seriousness. For it is of the highest importance to him that persons be raised who may serve the world and promote the knowledge of God, godly living, and all virtues to fight against the wickedness and the devil. So again, you can see God giving a, a worldly purpose, or I mean a worldly gift to drive a churchly purpose. God gives a worldly gift to drive a churchly purpose. So, I met Lisa before I was back. She wouldn't put up with me much until after I was because she was raised Lutheran and she was raised right. But um, even still inside of this, um, God had, had uh, set this, this thing in motion even before I understood what it was. I knew what marriage was when I was in high school, even before I met her. Um, but at the same time, he would more and more teach me about what a great churchly gift it is. He would more and more use this to, to bring about those children running around that way, they're fast, um, to, to, to be brought up inside of it. He would more and more use this so that um, inside of it, the church would also prosper because he loves us. You guys with me? He gives a worldly gift for a churchly purpose. It's wonderful. 209. Are we in time? We got time. Therefore, I've always taught that this estate should not be despised or held in disrepute as is done by the blind world and are false ecclesiastics, but that it be regarded according to God's word, by which it is adorned and sanctified, 
so that it is not only placed on equality with all other states, but that it precedes and surpasses them all, whether they be that of emperor, princes, bishop, or whoever else they please. For both ecclesiastical and civil estates must humble themselves and all be found in this estate, as we shall hear. In other words, what's more honorable, to be president or to be a husband? What's more honorable? to be successful at work or to have your family. That doesn't mean don't try at work. That doesn't mean the president is bad, but that means that when God sets up husband and wife, it's so that we can raise up the next generation of the presidents because the next president of the United States might be two years old right now, somewhere down the line. Not like this next one in 2020, but like somewhere down there, they gotta come from somewhere, right? Marriage precedes all of this. Marriage upholds all of this. And so when we start to then hold this estate as, as our measure, um, what we can say then is there are, certain, there are certain ways that the world would have you not lean into your marriage. Those might not be all that great, guys. It's, it, it might not. There, there is a way to both be a CEO and a loving husband or a loving wife. But you also have to make that a huge priority. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. There's a way even, like, just honestly, to be a pastor and ruin both. Because this job, this job will be as many hours as a week as I let it. There's always another visit. There's always another book. There's always another sermon. There's always another thing to study. There's always, always, always more work. I have never, ever, ever in my time in the ministry ever looked at my to-do list and said, yep, I got it all taken care of. I'm good. And so if I left this, this will take over my life and pull me from my family. And I'll just say, I've got no time for you. I've got more important things to do. God in his mercy, though, has given me a more important estate and said, your first job is right there in your house. So much so that Paul tells Timothy that if you can't keep your house in order, you have no business being a pastor. So that then I, when I come out to this, I say, there's always going to be another. I'm going to do as much as I can this day and rejoice, but then I'm going to go home to my family. Um, the joke uh, among pastors is that the, the mistress is the church because she takes all your time and all your energy and all your attention. That's not a healthy thing. If your idea of being a successful pastor or businessman or any other vocation is the one that belittles your family, take a step back and then look to the people who are doing those things and actually putting them first. Because I know CEOs who, who are very much family men who say, this, this matters more. This is the way. This is the thing that actually gives all of the other stuff meaning and value in the first place. And that's something to be lauded. That's something to be held about. Praise God for them. You with me? Yes. Super. All right. I am on paragraph 209. 210. Look at us making progress. Oop. Go down here. Therefore, it is not a peculiar estate, but the most common and noblest estate, which pervades all Christendom, yea, which extends through all the world. So again, Luther says, you don't have to be a Christian to be married. Marriage is such a, 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 a pinnacle, uh, not a pinnacle, uh, a cornerstone of society that you'll see it in healthy Christian families, but you'll even see it in families that only have the law written on their hearts and not yet have heard the gospel. It, it, it's a wonderful, blessed thing. 
And again, watch how he, he does this. There, there's an art to, to Luther's writing here because he can be uh, a pretty funny guy who remembers said, uh, if your children won't learn the catechism, uh, starve them until they will. And if your pastor won't teach you the catechism, throw dung at him. Um, that, that's, that's my Luther. But this is also Luther who goes through and starts to talk about the things that should and shouldn't be done in marriage, but frames it in the positive, all the while driving not to the fact that these are things you can't do, you shouldn't do them, but all the while driving towards, this is why there's something to be protected in the first place. What's it being protected from? All those things you shouldn't do. But there actually is a good gift here in the first place worth defending. And if you don't understand that, woe to us, because marriage is lost if you don't understand that. Y'all with me? Yes. Super. Anybody else questions? Unmute yourself, remember. Two eleven. In the second place, you must know also that it is not only an honorable, but also a necessary state, and that it is solemnly commanded by God that, in general, in all conditions, men and women who are created for it shall be found in this estate, yet with some exceptions, although a few, whom God has especially accepted, so that they are not fit for the married state, or whom he has released by a high supernatural gift, they can maintain chastity without this estate. So there's your Spider-Man. Your supernatural power is to not necessarily need this. It's rare. Praise God for the people who have it. If you don't have it, don't pretend you have it. If I were to pretend I was Spider-Man and jump off a building, how would that go? That would go poorly. If I were to pretend that I, uh, I was... Um, free from the, the lusts of this, this flesh and say, I could dedicate my whole life to the ministry and I don't need a spouse and I should therefore as a priest not get married, but I don't have that power. Don't do that. That is worse than pretending to be Spider-Man and jumping off the building. And we've seen it happen. But like understand how Luther in his time is calling it because it was happening then too. In the monastery, Luther writes about some of the things that he saw the monks doing. In his first trip to Rome as a priest, he writes about how many other priests he saw in brothels. Um, the, the awful places that he would see these men who promised to, to be chaste, uh, and by chaste I don't mean driving towards marriage, but chaste I mean abstaining from it. You see the whole thing perverted. And they've diluted the whole gift of marriage to one act, and they promised to stay away from marriage, this great gift, the whole while. And in doing so, they only found themselves in the one act they said they would never do. Do you see how twisted it is? This is what the devil does. He, he would say then, to, to, um, to be especially holy, you must never be married, because that, that would be um, awful. Even though we just got done saying how great marriage is. But, you know, if you never have this, this um, desire to, to, to be intimate, that is the truly noble thing. Even though marriage is great and a wonderful place for intimacy. They said, no, all intimacy is bad. So they fled from the one good gift that God gives. And when they fled from the one good gift that God gives, they also fled from the giver. And where did all those priests find themselves? In a holier place or a worse place? This is what happens when the devil grabs hold of God's gifts. He will always twist them around. And so we don't reduce this whole thing to one act, but a, an office, a vocation, a gift. Chastity is not an abstinence. Chastity is simply what if God 
would have for you someday or now the desire for you to have a healthy, happy marriage. The things that would help it are good and chaste. The things that would hurt you now or in the future have a healthy, happy marriage are unchaste. And I hate to ask this, but doesn't that include the movies and the books and the things that we expose to watch? It does. It does. The movies, the books, the websites. Yeah. This is actually one of the chief places where unchastity, it, it, it breeds. Because remember, it's heart before hands. And so you can do it. Um, and you can say, um, by the age of 10, 95% of children, not just boys, but children, are exposed to websites they should not see. 95% by 10. It is normalized in a culture so that it changes how they see each other. And if you don't believe me, watch how when grown-ups leave the room, high school kids talk about each other. It's not one day, you might be my healthy, happy family. It's this is a body part. Go then to the adult novel section. And it's, it's far less smutty, but it attracts a whole different audience of, of women inside of a healthy, happy marriage. And it encourages and, and incites them to say, what if my husband were so much more than he actually were? Does this help? with a healthy, happy marriage or hinder a healthy, happy marriage. It, it hinders. Um, and so um, I, I don't just mean that then the movies with dirty scenes, um, but I mean that the movies that portray marriage as something uh, transient or optional or to be utterly disregarded. Um, I remember uh, how uncomfortable I was when the kissing scenes came out in the movies when I was a kid. And I realized that my parents, um, even apart from the church, knew enough that uh, I was never raised with lewd movies in the house like that. Um, but like looking back, the scenes that made me most uncomfortable when, when people were kissing, it was when they were husband and wife. And that's actually something to be lauded. Because look, you're giving a, 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 a position of, of, of an expressionate love. That's good. That builds toward. Can it be perverted? Yeah. But we, we mean all of those things. Those can be unchaste books or movies or websites. And they can do just as much damage as some of the more outward acts. Because they change how we see the gifts that God gives us. They change how we see each other. And this is why we talk about them. We have to talk about them. Are, are you with me here? Yes. All right. And again, that doesn't mean you can't be a Christian if you've been to these sites or read these books or seen these movies. It means that Jesus died for you. And that's a wonderful thing. It means that you should not measure your marriage by where you've been, but what God would clothe you in. It means that you should not measure your spouse by what the world would demand, but by what God would give. And so can we talk, uh, have we talked about soulmates ever here? This is where, like, the movies might not be a, a good. Uh, they could be very unchaste, even in a PG fashion. So to the, to the, the chick flick, the soulmate is what? Because I've seen the Hallmark movie. Because uh, there's really only one movie. I'm pretty sure uh, they, they, they reproduce it 50 different ways. But there's really only one movie. Um, yeah, okay. I'm throwing rocks because I'm bored and nothing explodes in them. I guess that's not fair on me. Uh, but um, so, so in the, those, those romantic comedies, there is almost always a beginning where there is a couple and they fight. And so this is not the soulmate because they have problems. But 
somebody else comes along and they have no problems. And I know that because they have no problems, this is my soulmate and this is the person I should be with because we have no problems. And so we define soulmate as that person, that one person out there who you must track down. And if you find them, you will have no problems. And that leads you to question that every time you have problems with your spouse, you the right guy. So let me do soulmate this way. From the Bible, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. When do you find your soulmate? When you get married. You're, you're mated. I know that Lisa is my soulmate. Not because we never have problems, but because we're married. When did she become my soulmate? When we got married. Was she my soulmate before we got married? No. Was she my soulmate now? Yes. I know this because God said, look, this is the woman, her, nobody else, her. And she said to her, that, that bozo over there, that's the guy, nobody else, him. And here we can talk about love again as if it is a gift that God gives and not simply rooted in what do I want? Because what I want changes pretty quick. I knew that I wanted Chick-fil-A until I drove past the pizza place. And if I'm this way with fast food, how much more with the serious things, especially when life gets hard? So sometimes those romantic comedies are far more unchaste than some of the things rated a lot worse because they teach us to despise the gifts that God gives and try and measure, measure soulmate by problem and not by gift. You have a soulmate if you're married. Praise God. I know because you're married. You with me? Questions, comments? All right. We, are, uh, we just finished talking about Spider-Man in paragraph 211, supernatural gifts. Let's do 212. For where nature has its course, as is implanted by God, it is not possible to remain chaste without marriage. So in other words, unless you have this supernatural gift, can you remain chaste without marriage? No. What happens then if a society were to put off marriage until about the age of 35? Is that going to help the society or not? It's probably not. I'm just putting that out there. Um, if we have a whole bunch of kids that we know are struggling with these things and we say, yeah, that's great that just, just bear it and look at websites until you're 35 and you have your finances figured out, then you'll have no problems in your marriage because your finances are figured out. Understand that we've set them up with a whole lot more baggage than being poor together. I'm just putting that out there. Y'all can be poor together. But when you come with a whole bunch of other baggage and try and sort through it in your mid-30s, it gets harder. And divorce rates have followed that. For flesh and blood remain flesh and blood. And the natural inclination and excitement have their course without let or hindrance as everybody sees and feels. In order, therefore, that it may be the more easy in some degree to avoid inchastity, God has commanded this state of matrimony that everyone may have this proper portion and be satisfied therewith. Although God's grace besides is required in order that the heart also may be pure. The grace again is where we want to end on this. Um, there we go. Just because you're married doesn't mean you won't have problems. If you're married, you need grace. If you're single, you need grace. What you need, grace. Let's just stick there with me. All right. We're at time at paragraph 213. Does anybody have any questions 
before we uh, we close down for the night. Or comments. Just remember to unmute yourself if you're online. All right, thank you all so much. Uh, shall we pray as our Lord has taught us? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all so much for your time tonight. All right, y'all take care. <laughs>